Morrison rambles while states make COVID moves, aged care calls for military help, NDIS being left behind in vaccine race, and the good news is about Australian birds. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your host, Ben Davison, and joining me, as always, is the wonderful, the suffering from depression today, <laughs> the spilling of tea on the dog's tail accidentally, <laughs> Van Batham. Hello, uh, Van. How are you? Hi, everyone. Yes, so it's taken me days to work out. Am I just really terrified about the coronavirus situation? Am I having a per- like perfectly rational response to the ineptitude of the Morrison government? Or am I suffering from major depressive disorder, which has, of course, afflicted me for the majority of my life on this planet? And uh, look, it's a bit from all three columns. So if I'm not quite on fire... Uh, this episode, you know why, but um, I speak very openly about my issues with mental illness and unfortunately today I am deep in it and I've got to say, Ben, watching the Morrison presser did not help. No, it was really a a rambling pile of nonsense. (laughs) Um, You know, it was the sort of thing a junior executive presents to a board for the first time, you know. Look at all the different activities I've done. I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. It was like 35 minutes of all the things little Scotty Morrison has done over the last two years of the pandemic. None of it strategic. None of it focused on the outcomes. All of it kind of, see, this is why I'm the Prime Minister. See, justification, justification, justification. And none of it with a broader picture in mind. It was really quite a disturbing display and in many ways makes you understand why the Board of Tourism Australia probably sacked him. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I've got to say I've got very strong underperforming executive member of student council vibes from Morrison today. <laughs> Anybody with a background in student politics knows the person who's taking the money and not doing the work but fronts up to the meeting so they won't get sacked and gives a list of like, you know, anecdotal incidents of their participation and things that aren't relevant to their portfolio in order to justify their existence. And I really got a sense of that today. When he went into the blessed be the chicken farmers, I really lost it. I was just like, you know, I'm terrified about my mother up in Sydney. Uh, you and I assessed that it was it was likely if I didn't have Omicron by the time I got to Melbourne Airport, I would have it by the time I got to my mother's doorstep back in Sydney. So my beautiful cousin is taking care of her and I'm just, you know, constantly in anxiety about her health, about my health, about your health. So many of our friends have coronavirus at the moment. Every household in Australia is dealing with the virus in the most horrendously material and practical of ways. And the Prime Minister gets on TV and essentially goes, I am the chef of word salad. <laughs> well, look, we'll get into more detail about that Morrison press conference because there are some elements of it that we do need to break down a little more and, and explore, uh, including implications for the workforce, as well as what he actually announced, which wasn't that much. But we should talk about uh, what the states are doing because the states have all uh, are all giving press conferences today. Uh, we've had the Premier of Victoria, the Premier of New South Wales, the Premier of Queensland, Premier of South Australia have all given press conferences uh, before we've recorded the show. I'm sure the others will do so as well because they're all moving to reduce 
the, the time frame between the second dose of vaccine and the booster shot ban. So uh, in Victoria, New South Wales and South Australia, they've all brought the booster shot forward uh, to three months. It was four months. Uh, and of course, we've also seen the case numbers come out of those states as well. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the, the overarching situation because there are very large case numbers. Queensland has 89,638 active cases, 835 people in hospital, 11 deaths in the last 24 hours. The Queensland Premier has announced they're bringing private hospital beds and staff into the public system, uh, but they will be letting uh, fully vaccinated international arrivals into Queensland from this weekend. Mm which is something a lot of people have been calling for. Uh, in Victoria, we've called a code brown on our major hospitals. Please give a medal to the person who came up with code brown. <laughs> that is an Australian who is appropriately responding to the situation. Let it be said. So code brown, for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, I had to learn about this too, was that it's an external environmental catastrophe, effectively. That um, necessitates wearing brown trousers to work. Well, it necessitates people coming back from leave, redeployment of staff, the delay of non-essential activity in the hospital. Uh, and, you know, Victoria has 1,173 people in hospital with COVID uh, as of today. 18 people died yesterday. New South Wales, as it has been now for months, continues to be uh, the worst in the worst situation uh, in the country. 2,863 people in hospital, 32 deaths yesterday. Over 300 people have died in New South Wales in the last four weeks from COVID. Uh, not only are they bringing forward the boosters, they, they've had a couple of... A couple of quite bizarre things have happened, uh, and you know, Van, you know, you know me when it comes to Sydney. I'm not the biggest fan of Sydney. Ben, I have some. I have some. It's a city of five million people. I know. I know. It's an important a Australian few city. exceptional circumstances, which have led you to have negative experiences in counters there, <laughs> does not mean that everybody in Sydney is bad. I know. My mother lives in Sydney. Ben. Some, My mother is a very good person. I have some lovely friends. We in have Sydney. excellent union comrades in Sydney who have never ever let us down. Correct. 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 All this is true. Let's talk about some of the fun facts that we've learned in the last twenty four hours about Sydney, though, because one. One of them is somewhat humorous, although a crime, and that is people reporting Brad Hazard, the New South Wales Health Minister, as having COVID on a rapid antigen test because, of course, it's a self-reporting system. And people are now, whether it's to make fun of Brad Hazard or to sabotage the system, which is kind of Brad Hazard's take on it, uh, they are- Oh, I thought that was Brad Hazard's job because that's the job he's been doing for the past 12 months. But people are saying Brad Hazard has COVID and entering it into the Services New South Wales app that Brad Hazard, New South Wales Health Minister, has COVID. This apparently has happened now more than once. Brad Hazard has reiterated that this is a crime and is subject to a $5,000 penalty. Um is this uh, this potentially could be part of the same movement of people who are rearranging spice racks in supermarkets to say obscene things about the prime minister? I think we're seeing a, an uptick in the kind of organic social activism that indicates there really is a serious crisis that is penetrating the consciousness of ordinary people. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like absolutely. this is not just about like hashtag Ozpol fanatics on Twitter anymore. Yeah, it's really getting to the point where people are, are doing pretty desperate things. And speaking of desperate things. Speaking of desperate things, I want to clarify that I was drinking green tea, which was at quite a reasonable temperature. So in no way was the dog hurt by the tea on tail <laughs> episode, just in case you thought I was laughing at a scalded hound. No. That is obviously not what was going on. And let me tell you, if I did actually hurt my dog, my depression would not be in this comparatively mild state at this point. For those who are concerned, I can... Verified Germanicus is now spluting. And if you don't know what that is, I suggest you look it up because it's very, very cute. But basically laying on the floor, having a little having a little snooze. At some point, I'm sure he will shake his tail and his little bell. But going back to the desperate things that are happening, the the shortage of rapid antigen tests, everybody's aware of this. Everybody's got family who need tests. You know, the stories that we're hearing of people sharing tests, getting them to friends and family who need them is being, you know, yes, it's inspirational, but it also reinforces the failure of government, right? Well, in New South Wales, somebody or some bodies have stolen 42,000 rapid antigen tests worth over half a million dollars. I mean, a huge congratulations to the New South Wales government because every day when I think surely these clowns can't clown any more than they've already clowned, now we have 42,000 precious, precious rapid antigen tests stolen in New South Wales. So Liberal government policy has ensured that these are, you know, the most hot ticket in demand item in Australia at the moment because we've seen the price gouging. We know that's happened. We know, despite what the Prime Minister says, that the federal government has been acquisitioning rapid antigen tests from suppliers organised by service organisations and companies. We know that's happening because the documentation has the government's yeah. name on it. Yeah. And not that anybody believes anything Scott Morrison says anymore, but so everybody's absolutely desperate for these tests. People are getting sick. We spoke about a couple of weeks ago when Ben and I were sick and we found out we had seasonal flu and not coronavirus, but seasonal flu is going around. People are terrified, trying to do the right thing and protecting family members and the rest of it. And the New South Wales government didn't think it was a priority to maybe have some extra security around a supply of 42,000 rapid antigen tests. How are these people managing to keep buses going in the state of New South Wales? I mean, I think the answer is probably, I guess, they're not. I mean, well, this is leads in very nicely, Van, to the so much sighing. Sorry about all the sighing, everyone. <laughs> to the to the conversation about the workforce, right? Because we are seeing the workforce, the, as Scott Morrison said in his presser, right. as if it was like space force. I wonder it, what the uniforms are like it, in workforce. It's a really. It's a really disconnected kind of view of Australian society to think of working people workforce as workforce, not working people, right? And we But saw- then you would have to acknowledge they were people, Ben. Well But I- you're thirty eight years old. Have you never experienced <laughs> Liberal government before? Do you not know how this works? They I do not think how. of us as I, people. Well they don't. They don't. And can I just say here a big shout out and congratulations to the Meat Workers Union. Uh, to the Australian Council of Trade Unions and the whole union movement for pressuring Woolworths and pressuring Tays abattoirs in South Australia who were going to send hundreds of COVID-infected workers back into a meat processing plant, some of which was due to go to Woolworths, by all reports, the majority of which was due for export, purely a profit-making exercise. And 
the pressure that the union movement applied to both Woolworths and Tays meant that that didn't happen on Monday. Now, you know, the, the situation, though, we're seeing every day liberal governments, whether it's in New South Wales or South Australia or the Morrison government, talk about the workforce, not as though we're people, but as though we are just a unit of production. But we are just a union, a unit of production. By the way, Ben is doing some study at the moment and was uh, going through a, a textbook the other day that talked about how companies are management the executive and the shareholders, and it was like that's a very curious interpretation of a workplace. Like, yeah, it's a really, it's a really skewed view when when all you think about for a company is the shareholders, the board, and and the management. And <laughs> because products just magically appear. How do they appear? We cast spells on the factory floor, and these objects are summoned from the ether, not facilitated at all. And. But you can hear the Germanic has given himself a scratch there. One of the things I really wanted to point out here is that the union movement has been very vocal in the last week or so around the issues of safety in the workplace. And the Taze example is a really classic one where without unions, without workers standing together in unions, you would have had a, a corporation with government endorsement forcing people to do things that were not safe and potentially exposing the rest of us to unsafe products in the process. Now, it was the union movement that stepped in and said, this is not acceptable. And I know I say this every episode, and we always say this in all of our social media posts, but you've got to join your union. Join your union. And and the good news is, friends, that more people have joined the union in the last two weeks than for a very long time. It's a record last couple of weeks because this sort of situation is happening again and again and again where we're seeing employers try to pressure people into going into work. So australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's the link you can go to. And you want to be ready. I mean, this is the thing, and I think a lot of Australians are working out that situations in some workplaces are getting so dire due to staff shortages that employers are like, well, it's been the rules and we'll pressure the government we'll just shovel people back, you know, into the workplace when it's unsafe. And if you're not in the union now, like you want to be in the union as soon as possible. You want to be in the union before the problem happens. Don't be one of those people who finds themselves isolated and unsupported in an unsafe environment, not feeling confident to stand up to the boss and what they're being told and, oh, it's a management decision, I don't make the decisions and blah, blah, blah. You don't want to be that isolated. You want to know that you have representation so you do not go into an unsafe situation that you feel like you cannot get out of. Because let's be really clear about this for people who are in any way unsure, right? What the union movement has been saying is that if a workplace is unsafe for whatever reason, for whatever reason, whether it's because of asbestos or COVID or smoke, you don't have to be there. You have a right, and in fact, there is an obligation on the employer to provide a safe working environment. You can walk out of an unsafe working environment. And that's not going on strike, no, by the way. it's not. Right? You have the right to refuse to enter an unsafe workplace. You have that legal right under Australian law. Now, there are... There are ways to do that to make sure you're fully protected. And that's why we talk about joining the union, because the union, the, the group of workers and the elected officials, they have their expertise, they can help 
when you're confronted by something that you're not sure about, when you're confronted about is this safe or not, there are frameworks, there are there are case law, there's a whole raft of 150 years of experience that you want to draw on to make those decisions, to make sure you're protected, your workmates are protected, your family at home is protected. Nobody wants to get COVID at work and take it home to their family. That's obviously a terrible idea. And we want to be really clear too, like certainly when I was a young worker, I often felt, wow, if I stand up to the boss on this issue, I won't get more shifts and I might lose my job. Well, I can't actually sack the union. That's not how it works. So the the way that you go about this, be a union member, tell the union what's going on. The union takes action on your behalf. That means you're not cornered into an uncomfortable one-on-one situation with the terror that you're suddenly going to find yourself unemployed for standing up for yourself. And that is the single most important reason to join a union, but do it now because we're seeing it everywhere. People get in contact with Ben and us all the time about things going on in their workplaces that they find like disturbing or uncomfortable and the rest of it. And the answer is always the same. Tell the union, be part of the union, take union protection. Because let's be really crystal clear. Today's rambling, nonsensical press conference by Scott Morrison was very much a, I'm still at work, I've been working, you've got to go to work. Now, Josh Frydenberg's going to talk about his trip to a Coles distribution centre <laughs> and a truck trucking company that I'm pretty sure is a Liberal Party donor, by the way, uh, and how awesome it is that they're all at work because we've changed the law to make them say you have to go to work even if you're a close contact. You know, it's really interesting you should say that because Scott Morrison's so busy at work and yet one of the really glaring things that happened in that press conference was that horrible story about that little girl in, in in New South Wales who was reported missing in the Blue Mountain, sorry, in the Blue Mountains. Um, uh, it, I mean, it's incredibly distressing to even contemplate. Uh, Morrison was doing his, oh, yes, well, I'm so hard at work, and he started his press conference talking about this terrible news about this little girl. And when it got to press questions, somebody was like, you do realise that they have found her body and she is deceased, and he didn't know. So a very interesting take on what it looks like to do a day at work from Scott Morrison there. And just in the, I think to a lot of people, it just sums it up that he's just not across details. Yeah. That it was more important to him to give a press conference uninformed, talk about things that he was not up to date about, praise himself. It's been really interesting for me because I have a lot of friends who aren't political at all just because Ben and I are, you know, nerdy (laughs) wonks. doesn't mean everybody who we hang out with is, you know. We have like a vast number of friends who do not discuss politics but know that Ben and I are political and you always know when an issue is cutting through, I get a text message saying, what is Scott Morrison going on about? My friend of mine never talks about politics. And I was like, yeah, and she just wrote back, he is cooked. And I thought... I think that level of penetration, like... And that, and that's really where we are because that press conference notionally was to make an announcement about uh, temporary visa holders getting rebates on their visa fees uh, for international students and backpackers over the next eight months. Uh, sorry, next eight weeks for international students and 12 weeks for backpackers. Well, fulfilling a labour shortage by charging you just slightly less to come here and work for us. Basically. Brilliant, in potentially and, unsafe conditions. Yeah, and to announce a $3 million grant to promote this scheme. Um, Through to, Tourism Australia. Which Morrison, of course, was once managing director of. What the bloody hell are you doing? <laughs> and. And that was really only a very small part of the press conference. The vast majority of it was him listing all the things that he thinks 
he's done that are important. Met with the chicken farmers, met with the diesel fuel people. All and the diesel fuel people <laughs> and the chicken farms. Lots of chicken farmers and diesel fuel people in that. And they think we're great. I met some people the other day. Frydenberg got on this and he was like, I met some people the other day who think I'm great was basically the message. And I'm like, yes, and we all have girlfriends in Canada. Thank you. <laughs> but it was also that... There are real issues, and we're going to talk about some of them, right, because there are real issues here around workplace safety. The union movement saying, what are you going to do about safety? Where are the uh, where are the rapid answers in your tests so people can test before they go to work, so they can test at work? Those things are not in place. You haven't made them free. There's, they're just not there. What are you going to do about teachers when schools go back? We're just pushing through. <laughs> What are you going to do about age? Throwing care? caution to the wind. And I'm like, that's really interesting. Throwing caution to the wind is a government strategy. One rather thinks we invented the concept of government to avoid the caution to the wind scenario. Well, that's effectively where we are, right? Because there are there are no real policies, no real structures, no new frameworks coming out of the Morrison government about how education is going to operate, how aged care is going to operate, how disability support is going to operate. And that's what's needed, right, is some actual thinking about how these things will function. Morrison is is literally just saying, well, we'll just continue to extend an old program. We'll tinker with an old program about exploitable migrant workers. You know, the Migrant Workers Centre has said temporary visa holders aren't an expendable last resort workforce. You know, Sally McManus has said it appears that instead of moving on this issue, the Prime Minister wants to move on workers' health and safety rights. We will strongly oppose this. You know, there is nothing coming out of Morrison today that suggests any kind of solution to workforce shortages in supply chain, workforce shortages in the health sector, in aged care, or in disability. And I want to talk about aged care, Van, because- Before you do that, can I tell my hilarious joke I made on Twitter? Sure, go So I summarised the Morrison Presser as- we are now reinvesting in stable doors. Our stable door management is 11% better than it was at this time last year. We're also heavily concentrating on bolt refilling. Like this is, the, they've had two years. Oh, you know, the Minister for Social Services, whose name I can never remember, Anne Rustin. Yeah, I think that's the one. Doesn't really make an impression. <laughs> um, it, oh, she's having some conversations with people about ways forward. He actually said that in the yeah. press conference. Oh, she's having some conversations. Well, fantastic. She's having a bit of a conversation now. Tell me what's going on in uh, her associated portfolios, Ben. What is happening? With Anne Rustin? Yeah. I mean, Minister for Social Service. I mean, that's got nothing to do with I, I doesn't no policy overlap with aged care. No policy overlap with disability services is there because we're all independent units. We're not even people. We're just like labour resources unless we're on welfare, in which case we're a government burden or something. Well, I think the, I think the thing that really highlights that for me, Van, is that his response to the George Christensen issue. You know, oh, my God. This is a guy who's in the government. He's in the government. He has a government position on a committee. On a trade committee. This is a person trade, yeah. who represents Australia to the world. George Christensen. Let's all just take a moment to let that sink in. in. In investment and trade, which means he gets a substantial bump in his base salary. He was, And Morrison was asked about this, right? But to your point about how he compartmentalises, whether it's Anne Rushton having conversations with nobody really knows who, by the way. Some mysterious about, entity. About how 
unemployed or underemployed Australians will be somehow engaged to fill gaps in the workforce. Nobody's being which no, workforce? No, well, this is the thing. Nobody's you, being engaged. Where? Nobody's being engaged or participating in this. There's no engagement with unions around this issue. But George Christensen, who is spreading anti-vax foreign propaganda. We've talked about this on the show before. Oh, this week he literally put out a call for parents to not get their own children vaccinated. And let's be really clear here. That endangers the lives of those children. And people have called this out as a as dangerous anti-vax propaganda. And and Morrison kind of went on this whole oh, well, I don't support those views and I would encourage people not to promote those views and I've, you know, I've spoken to George about this and I just think he's wrong. But when he was asked whether he would take him off the committee, he literally said, I'll be talking to the Deputy Prime Minister about that. Now, let's be clear what that means. That means that somebody somewhere has decided the Barnaby Joyce's opinion is important and that's terrifying for everyone. The Barnaby Joyce's permission is important. Barnaby Joyce has to give permission to the Barnaby Prime Minister Joyce. of Australia to remove a dangerous, by the Prime Minister's own words, anti-vax propagandist who the government would not endorse to run again to remove him from a committee that sets out investment and trade policy as a country. The man is weak, he is incompetent, and he cannot do the job. And he's irresponsible because spend five minutes with the social media output of George Christensen and you don't see a, like an adult who should be entrusted with any responsibility for the other Australians. You see a loon. Yeah. And that's the word I'm going to use. Like this is unhinged la-la land, you know, Venn overlap of awful QAnon adjacent loon one staff. And of course, it's not just George Christensen. And this is the problem that Scott yeah. Morrison has because he also has the completely nutty Alex Antic. Yeah. And also has, of course, Matt Canavan, who has the been cosplay Matt Canavan. Yeah. The co- yeah. Australia's champion cosplayer, Matt Canavan. What will he be wearing today? Whose votes does he want? Will he be dressed like a builder or a sheaf of wheat? Uh, Matt Canavan has been calling for unvaccinated nurses to go into hospitals to fulfil staffing shortages. And I'm like, you know, I don't think that solves the problem. I don't think having, you know, transmission pathways into hospitals with vulnerable people is really the solution that we're looking for. And, of course, there's Rennick from Queensland who is just, I mean, he's a whole new level of, of the, the way that words and ideas don't really have any tangible meaning in reality <laughs> is how I would describe that. And I just want to point this out. Those of you who've read my book, QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults, the official Amazon bestseller, um, Q, in QAnon and On, I uh, t- like talk about the fact that I went undercover in that community yeah. and I created all these social media profiles and so I could observe these people up close. My fake personas get advertising from these guys every couple of hours, every day now. And that's who, they, I mean, there's and a machine not, going on. And it's not advertising to try and pull you out of a QAnon rabbit Oh, no, 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 no. My fake, you know, QAnon believing personas are targeted for mobilisation by the likes of Rennick, um, yeah. Christensen, Canavan and Antic. That happens all the time. But I'm specifically talking about Rennick because of the advertising that I've got from him. And it's, I mean, the Liberal Party aren't doing anything about this because they don't want to. No. They want to keep that proportion of Australians in their tent, in their column. And and it's terrifying, right? Because it is 
we have a compulsory electoral system. So as we've discussed before, you know, it's about getting slices of the electorate. You know, it's about this 4% and this 7% and this 8% of people and getting those slices of demographics and pulling them together. And that's how you build an electoral majority in this country. And what they've identified is that there is a 2 to 4% of the population who this kind of QAnon, conspiracy theorist, anti-vax, loon behavior uh, forms a core part of how they see themselves, how they view the world, and and can be can be mobilized as a voting issue. And when you're talking about maybe 20 seats around the country where 2% swings the seat. Swings the seat. They're happy to take votes from them. And that's why they won't condemn them. And because it won't stop. They're also hanging on to power by the slimmest of majorities. Yeah. They can't afford you like they can't afford to well, lose senators or asked, lower house members. Somebody asked why doesn't he just kick George Christensen out of the joint party room? And the the answer to that question is because without George Christensen, he doesn't have a working majority. Like, why does he not kick more people out of the party room? Why does he not? Why does he allow them to sit there and spout nonsense? Because he needs them to be prime minister. To to, to be in government, you have to have a working majority. This is floor. not a man who does what is right rather than what is in his self interest. Self interest every time. But I want to say this to people who like who have voted liberal, who see themselves in the traditional liberal bloc. Most of the people I know who vote liberal would see somebody like Julie. Banks or Kelly O'Dwyer, Christopher Pine or Malcolm Turnbull as the kind of person, that Josh Frydenberg as the kind of person, you know, economically conservative, socially liberal kind of person. Yeah. And that, okay, fine. All right. More the evidence that we model. need. Yeah. We need a healthy centre right because otherwise the right devolved to fascism. However, like those people are leaving the party and the people who Scott Morrison would rather protect are the likes of George Christensen and Alex Antic rather than Julia Banks and Kelly O'Dwyer, right? That's that's what's happening. He stabbed Malcolm Turnbull, betrayed his friend, like, you know, was responsible for the end of Julie Bishop's political career. So who is left in the Liberal Party does not actually represent the people who vote Liberal or identify themselves as the traditional Liberal base. And I just want everybody to just sit with that and the fundamental implications of what that means. Is your identity as a Liberal better attached to the George Christensen project or to the small L Liberals who are emerging in the electorate to run as independents? And I think Zali Stegall is a lot more representative of what Liberal Party voters in the overwhelming majority yeah. would identify with than basically anyone left standing in Scott Morrison's government. But I also want to thank the readers who sent us the advertisement for a truly dreadful um, internet event that's being built, a bit of a talk fest online, being headlined by the world's biggest failure as a son and notorious anti-vaxxer Robert Kennedy Jr., uh, which, of course, will feature speeches from, and he's absolutely pathological anti-vaxxer, um, features speak, the participation of George Christensen and yeah. Matt Canavan, and I believe it's either Red Ink or Antic, but definitely Canavan. And let's be clear, they've all been on Bannon's podcast. Yeah, so. Steve Bannon, the neo-fascist. And those of you who have uh, read my book would remember that Steve Bannon is a person who gave speeches quoting 
really famous Italian Nazis, like Italians who, when they had fascism in Italy, were a little bit to the right of that. Um, He has quoted them in speeches and, of course, he uh, shares platforms with the advocates of the Russian neo-fascist movement. So if you judge somebody by the company they keep, hanging out on uh, broadcast by neo-fascists and their friends is something generally I don't think the overwhelming majority of Australians want anything to do with, frankly. Absolutely. Now, let's bring it back a little bit to some- I'm so depressed. To some material realities. <laughs> and I don't, I'm sorry to say, I'm not sure this next this next topic is going to make you feel less depressed. Uh, we talked- I'm just going to stare at the dog. Oh, he's so cute. We talked curled the, up like a little prawn. <laughs> we talked on the weekend wrap about uh, the crisis in aged care in Australia with COVID. Well, today, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, that's Australian Union's uh, peak body, the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation, that's the group that represents nurses and midwives, the Health Services Union, the United Workers Union, and the Australian Workers Union. That's all of the unions that work with and represent the workforce in aged care, as well as the Aged and Community Services Australia and Leading Aged Services Australia, who are two of the biggest uh, aged care providers. So combined, this group represents the entire aged care workforce over a 1,000 aged care organisations and delivers 70% of the aged care services to 1.3 million Australians. This is, this is effectively the aged care sector and they, are, they have called for the Morrison government to provide Australian Defence Force personnel to support aged care services because of the dwindling number of aged care workers available to work because of COVID outbreaks, because they need the nurses and the aged care workers to actually go into the rooms and do direct support with our elders. They're asking for defence support to do cooking, to do maintenance, to do heavy lifting. A lot of the work that's required in an aged care facility that's not necessarily medically related or nursing related or direct care. But logistical support. The things that- It's come to this. And can I just say, it was great to hear Scott Morrison acknowledge that they prefer to have solutions from the private sector was something that he said in his press today. And I went, well, that preference and that your fundamental conviction that that's the way to go is why every all our systems are collapsing because it is not the job of the private sector to take over responsibilities for community safety. Again, it's why we elected government. And he basically dismissed this claim in his press conference without even mentioning it, right, because he said that the Defence Force is not a magic workforce. There's no magic extra work force. Uh, the reality is that there are there, the defense force is a standing army. Uh, and yes, there are responsibilities and things they have to do all the time. But in times of crisis, we have rolled out the Defence Force to assist bushfires, bushfire recovery, floods, floods, emergency management. And look, let's be really honest. The trade union movement does not like no. the idea of labor L-A-B-O-U-R, coming from anywhere but from from working people. Yeah. You know, we believe fundamentally in a fair day's pay for a fair day's work and if the work is so important that somebody needs to do it, you pay them and you pay them properly and you give them the dignity of a title and a job and tasks and, you and don't, pay. And you don't replace workers with the military. No, right? you don't replace workers with anybody. You don't replace them with work for the dull people. You do not 
replace them. We are in a situation where the absolutely disastrous handling of the coronavirus pandemic by the Morrison Liberal government, Liberal National Government, um, the absolute ineptitude they have shown towards the maintenance of systems. Because this is the other thing. We are looking at a decade of the Liberals in government doing everything they can to erode public control of social services and institutions. You know, they're pro-market um, you know, the private sector should handle all these things are the reason why aged care is a disorganised mess and is the reason why there are a gazillion stakeholders and profiteers and opportunists and cost-cutting cost and the rest of it. So to be in a situation where you have a workforce, a unionised workforce going, we need the army now, is a verdict on the absolute disaster that situation has become. And this is totally foreseeable, right? Because, you know, we've had an aged care royal commission say that the sector is understaffed, that it's underpaid, that it's undertrained, that they're overworked, like that there needs to be more staff put into this sector this has been going on for longer than the pandemic. What the pandemic has done is really bought- like fling a fireball into it. It really has. You know, it's like it's like you've already got a roaring fire and you just dumped a bunch of firelighters in. It's a it's a burning catastrophe. And anybody who's got a relative in aged care at the moment knows they're in lockdown most of the time. It's hard to see them. Uh, often you can't see them. You can only have one visitor. There's all sorts of restrictions, extra restrictions in place. Now, of course, some of it's to protect people. Of course it is. But some of it's because the resources are not there to do what's needed to look after people. You know, they're, they're requesting immediate ADF support. Uh, they're requesting COVID-19 payments for staff and a resolution to the issues regarding access to rapid antigen tests and personal protective equipment. We're getting reports that in some aged care facilities, they don't have proper protective equipment for the staff. That means, you know, a lot of the staff, like if a staff member gets COVID. Oh, and by the way, the New South Wales government just let 42,000 rats get stolen. If a member of staff gets COVID, not only can that be dangerous for them, obviously, but then it's very incredibly dangerous for the person in their 70s, 80s, 90s, who they're helping, who they're caring for. And that's why we have the personal protective equipment. And, you know, oh, they're old anyway is not okay. It's, it's really not, not. It's a dehumanisation of human beings and all dehumanisation of human beings is bad. That's a consistent moral principle. We do not, as a society, decide that entire communities of people are expendable. We don't do that. That's how we know that we are not psychopathic monsters. And it also flies in the face of what the Aged Care Royal Commission found, right, which is that actually most Australians want our elders to be looked after properly, you know, that we actually have an expectation, a reasonable expectation that government, when setting up an aged care system will do so in a way that humanises people and gives them quality of life. And dignity and, and respect. Dignity. Yes. On the basis of having lived so long to see so many things. It's almost like, Ben, I mean, it, 
I mean, you and know, having made such contributions to our society, and maybe experience things and have a collective generational knowledge of living through circumstances that others of us don't have. Wow, I wonder if that could ever possibly come in handy. What? So we're gonna like we're gonna develop a society where everybody's everybody with lived experience of this pandemic is extinguished before the next one runs around, so we can just figure out everything we learned and live through. Brilliant! What a great idea. And, you know, one of the things that I sometimes think about, Van, is the irony of this. <laughs> is that is the choice between early death or, like, humiliation in age. Oh, no, well, that's bleak. No. Sorry. Sorry, everyone. But, but the irony, right, the irony in the dehumanisation of everyday working people who go through retirement and get to a point where they do need support to get through every day and – that, that dehumanisation, and you contrast that to, say, somebody like Rupert Murdoch, who for all intents and purposes is of that age, right, but is a billionaire. You know, there are some incredibly powerful- Currently pressuring the British Tory government to sell the BBC. In his 90s, he's not considered expendable. People aren't going, oh, well, Rupert, you're 90 now. Have some porridge and sit down, love. That's not what's happening. Right, and that's that. it just blows my mind how many- of, of these incredibly wealthy, incredibly powerful, usually men, uh, uh, getting into their 70s, their 80s, their 90s in the case of Murdoch and others, and they're just still pulling the strings around the world, right? But for the vast majority of people, there's some sort of expectation that they become expendable once they reach a certain age. It's disgusting, and the contrast is just so stark in my mind. Wow, Ben, it's almost as if like your life and your capacity to live it is determined by the material circumstances into which you're born or enter involuntarily. Where did I read that? (laughs) Well, it certainly is. And look, I think it's a huge call by the union movement to to back this, uh, to work with these providers uh, who are predominantly (coughs) not-for-profit providers, it has to be said, Um, And, you know, obviously this is a major crisis. There's a major crisis in aged care. Morrison was very dismissive of it. Uh, Oh, no way. When he was praising himself (laughs) and his litany of self-praise. And, you know, it's interesting what you said about the private sector. Well, here are a huge chunk of the sector saying, can you help us please? And Morrison just refusing to do so. No. Just refusing to do so. Ben, before we get to the good news, there's one other um, one other topic I want to touch on, and it's in this same sort of vein, and it's the, the NDIS is being left behind in the vaccine race. You know, people might remember earlier on in the pandemic, we've discussed on this show before, and it's been discussed that the that NDIS participants and Australians living with a disability are obviously incredibly vulnerable, uh, particularly if they're immunocompromised uh, and need support to get vaccinated, to be protected at home, in the workplace, wherever they might be. Uh, and some of the stats that have come through, and this was in a piece uh, in The Guardian uh, just yesterday, only 14.8% of NDIS participants have received a booster. Now, that compares to just in Victoria, 26% of people in the general population have had a booster. So almost half. So medically vulnerable people have a less chance of being boosted 
Correct. the general population. Correct. Oh, well, I mean, that's just. And not only boosted, it, it flows right through here. It, in terms of double vaccinations, NDIS participants, only 83.8% of NDIS participants are double vaxxed. The general population, that number is 92%. Like it's great that we're getting big numbers vaccinated. The, the point I'm trying to make here is that some of our most vulnerable members of our community are being left behind. The government has a responsibility here. The you know, aged care and the NDIS were the two things the Morrison government said it would take care of. Aged care is a is a disaster. The sector is is begging for the military to intervene in the NDIS and in disability. We're seeing uh, the private providers who the government contracted to do this work tell people, tell people, and again, this is reported in The Guardian, point blank, we've had to deprioritise you because we've been told to prioritise aged care. So the resources are not there to do both. Oh, well, I mean, look at the amazing efficiency of privatisation working there, Ben. Look at that efficient privatisation model, which has never worked anywhere ever and is a total, total myth. And it's... Oh, and it's, great. I mean, it's just great, isn't it? It's just absolutely great. just fills you full of confidence. Here in the midst of this absolutely terrifying experience that all of us are living through is a government that just everything they touch crumbles to little bits of wet cake. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up today was because uh, the Queensland Premier, quite rightly, in my view, really highlighted the, the, the lower rates of vaccination on the Gold Coast. You know, that, that people on the Gold Coast, for whatever reason, were not getting vaccinated at the same rate as other people in Queensland and more broadly across the country. And you know, Anastasia Palaszczuk made this point a couple of times in a press conference today. If you're on the Gold Coast, please go and get vaccinated. Most of the hospitalizations in Queensland are coming out of that area and we need to get vaccinated. But in the Gold Coast, the double vax rate is 90%. So even there, where we acknowledge it's a problem because it's too low, it's still higher than the NDIS. You know, the Morrison government has to do something about this. Bill Shorten, who's the uh, shadow minister, Labor's shadow minister, has called it a roll call of failure by the Morrison government and called for people living with a disability to be taken from the back of the queue to the front of the queue. And this is, again, totally foreseeable. You know, none of what we're dealing with here, whether it's... Whether it's vaccinations more broadly, boosters, uh, vaccinations of young people, uh, the issue is in aged care, the issues with the NDIS, it's all been coming, right? We've been seeing it. The, the, the Disability Royal Commission in October called the vaccine rollout for people on the NDIS as seriously deficient. You know, that's what, four months ago, five months ago? We're starting to get to a point where there's just a willful ignorance. Morrison, to stand up there today and talk about the time he spent securing supplies of KFC and diesel fuel additive. While he was driving around organising his own rat tests, except it wasn't him, it was a staffer. Did you see that yeah. up this week? Yeah. yeah. For him to, to, to emphasise that kind of activity statement of his while ignoring the strategic responsibilities of his office to ensure aged care, disability support, vaccine rollout were happening and meeting targets. 
I just, just I want to remind everybody that whenever they're under pressure, this is a government that typically tries to bolster their brand by doing a bit of saber rattling at a convenient, you know, like supposed military enemy. And I'm like, these guys who cannot like run a basic rollout are not the people who you really want commanding anything in any kind of war or confrontation situation. I'm just like, what is this? But I tell you what else, Ben, like it makes me really, I mean, we know that I've got no love for anti-vaxxers. Like absolutely none, none at all. And the situation with the NDIS and aged care and the deficiencies and rollouts in those systems makes me even angrier at angry vax at anti-vaxxers, angry vaxxers, anti-vaxxers. I'm the angry vaxxer. I love vaccination and I'm really angry. And the reason why is that in the NDIS and in the aged care system, you have communities of people who can't just go out and get That's the virus, right. that they actually need a system in place with support staff, can't take individual responsibility for whatever reason to get vaccinated, there needs to be a system to support them. And then you have communities of anti-vaxxers who just thumb their nose at that lack of power and empowerment, whose personal decision to indulge whatever nonsense they've read on the internet that makes them feel special, holy, and in possession of secret knowledge this week means that can you imagine what it'd be like to be somebody in the aged care or NDIS system who physically cannot access a vaccine without like a, a support, that like a yeah. vaccination system in place and is being denied potentially life-saving medical treatment to uh, to ward off the virus, how must it feel to see these drongos in the community going, oh, you know, Bill Gates puts microchips in them and I'm standing up to freedom while I drink this Red Bull and smoke a joint about things that I don't understand their effects on my body. You know what I mean? Like yeah. how enraging. And just on this point, at the moment, as of today, every single person in the Lismore Base Hospital in ICU is unvaccinated. So while we're having all these systems failures in, you know, IVF services have been declared um, like non-essential medical procedures. You can't access IVF at the moment. The difference in months, even if that's only for a couple of months, there will be families who will not be able to have children um, through that process because of the interruption to that timetable. And yet medical personnel are being sucked out of the system to to provide care, which people are like, even if people are unvaccinated, they deserve to be cared for in hospital. But that choice to not get vaccinated, that contrarianism, that willful, disgusting, indulgent individualism is, is sucking doctors and other support staff out of hospitals um, into ICU wards at the same time people who want to get vaccinated can't. Like, it is disgusting. I will never, ever forgive. I believe they should have medical treatment, absolutely, but I will never forgive people who were mobilised as anti-vaxxers during this crisis, not ever. Well, I think, think, Van, that's a very, very strong point. Uh, And and I want to say, I want to say this, Morrison's performance today was really about one thing, and that is... Motivating Australians to throw bricks through windows. No, that's just how we felt. (laughs) No, that's just how we felt. Please don't do that. Uh, We're not encouraging that. No, we're not encouraging that. But it was about how poorly his polling is. You know, we saw a report earlier in the week in The Age that for the first time, certainly I think in my living 
memory, the ALP primary vote is above the combined primary vote of the Liberal and National parties. Now, if that translates at election time, that will be a massive and thumping defeat for the Morrison government. Which is what we need. And quite honestly, everybody, we need Labor majority in both houses of parliament. We need every single possible vote to support a strong majoritarian Labor government in the lower house, which is your local rep, and in the Senate. We need the Senate numbers because for Labor to clean up the monumental mess that has been left behind by the Liberals. They require a mandate, a powerful democratic mandate from the Australian people that allows them to legislate the cleanup without special interest groups or single-issue psychopaths or, you know, protest parties getting in the way and refusing to pass budgets because of, you know, like they want laws on the colour of people's trousers or whatever, right? It is only through powerful, mandated, majoritarian Labor government we are going to get any meaningful change in this country, like I said, without minor interests holding up the whole process and holding the country hostage in order to prosecute their own nonsense. Like the time of, you know, indulging our spell, ourselves on, you know, politics as an extension of lifestyle, like is over. Our systems are failing. They need to be cleaned up. They need an absolute integrated whole of government diverse policy response so we are never in this situation again and can mitigate whatever disasters lie down the road. You know, it's just so frustrating. And I get really frustrated when when I go on social media and watch people go, well, yeah, what we really need is, like, more independence and we absolutely need, like, more minor parties and the rest of it. And it's like, do you know the reason why we don't have carbon pricing in this country is because a minor party decided that they were going to make a name for themselves by holding up that entire process and holding that policy process overwhelmingly supported by the majority of Australians from happening. And let me tell you, if Labor is in minority government, that will happen again and again and again and again and nothing will change. You can see this going on in the United States of America where their parties don't bind and everybody can just go off piste and do whatever they want with two Democratic senators who just being a bit self-indulgent are stopping voting rights legislation and build back better policy and the rest of it and just being obstreperous and obstructionist and it means that a, a, a popular mandate from the United States, the people of the United States to make Biden president is being stopped and stymied at every turn. Like, come on, people. Yeah. It cannot, like, if, if it doesn't get better, it's only going to get worse. And what are we waiting for? Seriously. Like. Now's the time, right? So let's talk about some good news because there is some good news today that I think is really quite lovely and it's about Australian birds, Van. Do you know, usually I do the good news section and this has literally nothing to do with my current uh, depressive episode, but Ben found this one and he was so cute this morning. He came dancing in going, I've got good news. Ben does a marvellous job of dealing with my depression, by the way. He really is quite extraordinary and he's on it. Like he knows the things that cheer me up and you found this one, you own it, Benny. I did. So there's a there is a an album, an ARIA charting album, number three in the ARIA charts, Songs of Disappearance. It's a 24-minute album of endangered- Which doesn't sound cheerful, but bear with us here. But it's, it's, it's an album of endangered bird calls. And, you know, these are Australian birds that are currently endangered. It's number three in the charts. It's above Taylor Swift, Mariah Carey, and it's above ABBA. And the CD comes with a copy of the action plan that 
that uh, BirdLife Australia has been pulling together to repopulate the birds and proceeds from the sale of the album go to BirdLife Australia to make this happen. Now, the album is going international. There was a late surge of people trying to get the, some of the tracks included in the Hottest 100 from what I read. I'm not sure they'll have made it because it all came right at the end of that whole process. But this is fantastic. This is going, you know, what we need to do is we need to lift people's consciousness of this, Bird calls can be set there. Some of them are set to music. There's just, it's a lovely. And it's attracting resources to the conservation activities that will keep these birds alive. And that is wonderful. And that is so worth supporting. So we're absolutely getting our hands on it. And I, I think it's lovely. We had some birds outside. I think the cockatoos were making noise. Did you hear that just as we were yeah, talking did, about yeah. this? Not that our, the cockatoos in our yard are endangered at all, given the fact they eat all of our fruit. <laughs> but, you know, we're doing our bit. Um, but, yeah, no, that's it's such a great project and it should absolutely be supported. And I can't think of any more beautiful sound than the sound of Australian bird life. And, you know, I lived overseas for 10 years and it was the thing that I missed the most, like the environmental thing. You can even in Britain where you learn to eat the worst food in the universe and drink coffee that really tastes like flavoured mud, you know, like it's all bearable because they have like pretty good museums and things. But um, but you miss the sound of the birds. They're such a part of who we are as a people and the idea that there would be Australian children born who didn't know the sounds of those birds is terrifying. So support this album, love the sound and direct the resources to a conservation project that matters. Yeah, absolutely. So it's Songs of Disappearance. If you're looking for it, we'll post links on our social media as well. Uh, it's a really, really great thing. Van, that's pretty much all we have time for today. I want to Thank everybody who has contributed to our supporter page, buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. Yes, we already made the sound a little better. Hopefully people will notice. Uh, that's your investment <laughs> paying off already. That's right. And really, you know, we came back uh, a couple of weeks ago now and straight away you've put the week on Wednesday into the top 40 news podcasts on both Apple and Spotify right from the get-go in the top 10 for politics as well. You know, you, the listener, you make this show work. And we love your feedback and we try and incorporate as much of it as quickly as possible. For those of you who asked for more content about WA, check out last weekend's Weekend Wrap where I did a big section on WA. And, of course, today we did a bit more of a focus on Queensland because we got some feedback where people wanted some of that as well. And I love Queensland. I'm a flag-waving fan. You are. Now, we do promise to read out the names of our cadre and extending the reach Got it right here. Do you want to do the cadre? Okay, I'll do the cadre. Go on. Leona Gibbons, someone at Kerry Nash two zero. Billy McCabe, Cara and Will Robinson, Narissa Simon at Catagal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, Narunga Man, Sam Pigeon, Josh, uh, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, and Louise Watson, aka Red, White, and Blue Lou. And the extend the reach contributors. Uh, Kay Tui, Bo Sullivan, Elaine and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Jennifer Berkeley, Andrew Bryan, Tamara James, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Haddad, Keir Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, Daniel Slavin, at the real Neville Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, at, at not Sandy B, Melody Patterson, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Joe Lupino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, and Sarah. 
Thank you. And if we get your name wrong, just let us know with a little pronunciation guide. We do try. We do but try. But we are not SBS football announcers who are the greatest pronouncers of everything in the world. But we will try. We will get there. We have a standard to aspire to. Absolutely. So don't forget to share this episode. If you liked it, please like it, share it, comment, share it with your friends, talk about the issues. Let us know the things that are important to you. Don't forget to join your union, australianunions.org.au slash wow. And also, I appreciate the opportunity that you've given me to to be depressed and participate anyway. I hope that it's been bearable for you. Um, I feel a little better for just forcing myself to keep working. And uh, to anybody else who does suffer from a depressive disorder, oh, I am with you. I am with you so much. I love you, Vanny. I love you too. You're the best. Bye. Bye.